Uh, greetings from uh, New York City. Uh, I worship at a church called City Grace in the East Village. Uh, it's a Dutch Reformed church, um, although I'm ordained in the PCA. Uh, so glad to be with you the, here this morning. But I should also say greetings from East Hampton. Uh, we come here um, all throughout the year. We have a house out there, and we just love the beauty um, of the uh, East End. Um, and as I was preparing for this message, um, one thought that came to mind is that God is so faithful. And I say that God is so faithful because right before uh, Pastor Mark planted this church, after a presbytery meeting, we had lunch together. I don't know if he remembers this. We were in a, a dingy um, uh, bodega um, eating some greasy food. And I remember the food there was so salty because I have high blood pressure. And I thought to myself, I probably shouldn't be eating this, but I ordered it. So I'll just finish it. Um, and he told me that he was planning a church in the Hamptons. And I've never heard of the Hamptons back then. Um, and I was planning a church in Murray Hill. And as I look back over those years, all I can say is that God is faithful. Um, he's true to his promises. He's good. And he fights for, on our behalf. And he loves us. And the testimony of that or the evidence of that is this community, this church, and what God has done over the years. And because God is faithful, I suspect that he will accelerate that. Uh, he will bring greater flourishing, greater abundance. And that's my hope and prayer for this community and those also um, that I'm serving um, over in New York City. But before I read today's text, and it's an exciting one, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer and let's ask the Lord to grant us illumination and bless our time together. Gracious and loving Father, we come before you and we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's your spirit that searches the depth of God and therefore able to communicate truth to us. And what we need is illumination. Uh, we need to be able to see spiritual things and we need to discern um, how you're working in our lives and in our communities and in our families. Uh, we need to see you in your word, uh, that you are good and powerful and faithful and steadfast. So I pray that as we look into your word that you will bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. And we pray that all glory would go to Christ the Lord, because it's his spirit um, that is working in our midst. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done and for this opportunity to see what your word says. So we ask for your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I said today's text is an exciting text, and it really is. I probably read this passage 20 times, and I've not noticed just the sheer excitement of it. Uh, but sometime last year, when I meditated through this passage, I was completely blown away by the spiritual reality here, and I'm so excited to share that with you. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Second Samuel chapter 5. If you have your bulletins, it's printed there as well. I'll be reading from the, the NIV. I prefer that translation for this passage. Um, and um, I will be reading from verse 17, and we'll take it to the end of the chapter, which is 25. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, so David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As water breaks out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So the place was called Baal-perazim. 
the Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around them and attack them in the front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Powerful words um, and important words. To give a little bit of context, this is a high point, one of the high points of David's life. It's a high point because he is um, anointed king. Uh, He was anointed before, but the tribes come to him. And so he has this powerful nation under him. And not only is he the king uh, with unified tribes, uh, but the outside world acknowledges that. So Hiram of the city of Tyre, which is a powerful city, uh, he sends his uh, people to bless David, gives him cedar and gives him stonemasons and gives him carpenters. David's palace is built. Not only that, he goes on another military campaign and he takes the city of Jerusalem. And so it becomes the city of David. So all these things are very positive for David. Truly, this, I would say, is one of the high points of David's life. And his nation is encouraged and his nation is blessed. Right at this juncture, we see that the Philistines, they gather their forces and they want to attack David. So you have to ask yourself why they wanted to attack David at this particular juncture. And I think we can surmise and stand on pretty solid ground by saying that the Philistines probably wanted to do this because the Israelites are in a celebratory mood, maybe not in a mood to fight. And the Philistines are probably scared because all the tribes now have come to David. And so the people there are becoming more and more powerful. And fear grips the hearts of the Philistines. And they say, if we're going to attack, we have to attack now. So they come as one powerful army to rout and destroy this incipient kingdom. And so David sees, he hears, and he goes to the stronghold, and he does something very wise. He asks the Lord, shall I go up to fight? And God gives him counsel. Let's take a step back. Uh, Why did the Philistines attack? Well, for the reasons that I gave. And I think, again, based upon scholarship, that we're on pretty solid ground. But if we take another step back, I think there's spiritual forces in motion. And there is a pattern all throughout Scripture. Whenever there is a step of redemptive history, whenever there is a movement of God, wherever we see the progress of the work of God, there will be hidden forces that oppose it every single step of the way. And therefore, when we look at this from a spiritual perspective, we can see the marks of Satan. And we see the marks of Satan because he wants to destroy this kingdom in its infancy, if he can. Because he knows that this kingdom ultimately will bring blessing to the world. Two chapters later, this is vindicated. 
Two chapters later, we see that uh, there is a Davidic covenant, and God says through David and his lineage that they will be a Messiah who will have an everlasting kingdom. Satan knows all of these things, and so he wants to steal, kill, and destroy, just as it says in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. We see this all throughout Scripture. Every single movement of God, there is going to be opposition. And therefore, if we're going to be um, a wise people, we have to know that. Uh, When I look at the panorama of Scripture, I see it writ large. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. When God was about to deliver um, his people from slavery in Egypt, and there's a, a person by the name of Moses, and he is born... There's a massacre of children. And you have to ask yourself, why at that juncture is there a massacre of children? And the answer is, it's spiritual. Satan knows that Moses is going to be this great prophet man of God who is going to lead his people out of bondage into the land of promise. And so he wants to thwart that. So there's a massacre of children. We see the same thing in the New Testament. As soon as you open the pages of the New Testament, you read the genealogy of Jesus and you see his birth narrative, right then and there, there's another massacre of children. Why is it at that particular juncture there's a massacre of children? Because there are spiritual forces at play. Satan knows. He wants to thwart it. He wants to stop it. Because his only objective is to steal, kill, and destroy. We see the temptation of the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. As soon as he is baptized, he is pushed into the wilderness where he is tempted so that he would be... Uh, the person who falls rather than the person who succeeds to stop the plan and the work of God. So if you take that pattern and use that as a lens to look at this passage, we can say that there is something called spiritual warfare. And we see that every significant, powerful, beautiful thing that God wants to do there's going to be opposition. I know for some of us, this might seem a little foreign. Um, but I think even when we look at the secular world and look at really thoughtful people, they will probably concur the same thing. Uh, one of the best books that I read um, the last five or ten years was by an American history uh, professor, American studies professor, rather, Andrew Del Banco. Uh, he teaches at Columbia. He's a celebrated professor. Um, and he entitled his book called The Death of Satan. And he is an atheistic uh, Jew, so he's not writing from a point of view of faith. He's actually writing from a point of view of secular humanism. And he's trying to tell his colleagues um, in these halls of um, academic powers, hey, you know what, we have to rediscover evil. Because if you look at literature uh, from uh, the beginning of the foundation of America, and now the discourse on Satan has completely dropped Um, And connected to that, a discourse on evil has completely dropped out of modern parlance. And his basic thesis is if we lose the imagination of to think about evil, then evil will have finally won. And he's saying that now we are seeing that evil is winning. And he's writing to his colleagues and he's writing to anyone who will read, let's rediscover this. Because we cannot allow evil to win in this modern day and age. And I think he's touching something very important, that there is something called evil. There is a spiritual world. There is opposition to the good things that God has planted in our hearts to do. And so when we feel 
face challenges and we go through difficulties, we shouldn't scratch our head and say, wow, I wonder why it's so difficult. I mean, one of the reasons why it's so difficult because there is always that spiritual opposition. And so my first point is, yes, there is something called spiritual warfare and we need to be cognizant of it. And I think when we understand that, life becomes a little more understandable, especially the struggles and the difficulties in ministry and doing the work of God. But I think if we look at this passage, um, David gives us um, a clue of how we ought to live. He gives us a clue here because um, the Philistine army comes to attack him, and he's at this stronghold, and what does he do? Well, he inquires of the Lord, and he says, Lord, uh, shall I go up and fight? And God says, yeah, go up and fight. And David says, uh, will you give this army over to me? And God says, surely I will. And so presumably David um, has a direct frontal attack. Maybe he's the one who surprised uh, the Philistine army. And the language that Second uh, uh, Samuel uses is really poetic. Um, God broke out like water. Uh, so the Spirit of God broke out, uh, like a raging torrent broke out. And the one who fought for Israel was not so much David and his men. And David knows that. And the author knows that. Uh, the one who broke out and fought for, for Israel was no one less than God himself. Uh, but the Israelites, uh, not the Israelites, the Philistines at this point are incensed. Um, so they lost this battle, but they're not done yet. Uh, they're, they're tough people. Uh, and so they say, you know what, we're going to fight again. We're going to gather more resources, everything that we can, and we're going to come up against Israel a second time. And so what does David do? Well, he's so wise. So what he does for a second time, he inquires of the Lord again. And he says, Lord, will you give me this victory? And God says, yes, but you have to uh, follow my directions. This time, don't go directly to fight them, uh, but circle around them. And it's so beautiful. He says, I want you to look up at the top of the poplar tree- trees swaying presumably swaying in the wind. And I want you to listen, look up and listen. And as you hear the rustling of the branches, and you, see, you hear the rustling of the leaves, quickly then flank them, because then you will know that the Lord has got out before you. Once again, the victory is the Lord's. But what's the point here? The point here is that David is one who inquires of the Lord. When we're facing um, spiritual warfare and we're facing opposition and difficulties in life, sometimes I think what we do, uh, because we're so capable, is try to solve these problems by ourselves. Um, David here doesn't take assessment of his army by saying, you know what, we have uh, 64,000 people in these three tribes, plus we have some cavalry here, plus we have some slingers and archers over there. None of that is written here. The first thing he does, and there's a sincerity of David's heart, he seeks the Lord and seeks his counsel. Because David knows that if there is going to be a victory, the victory is going to be the Lord's. And what he needs is God's counsel. He probably learned it in the lonely, forlorn hills of Israel um, as he was a shepherd boy, where he fought the, the bear and, and the lion. Um, and as he slew Goliath, he knew that he didn't have the chops to do that. But at the same time, he knew that his God was strong. And therefore, 
he learned that beautiful lesson of dependency. And so he inquired of God. And notice, all battle is real time. And so the first piece of advice is go up and get them. Give this frontal attack and they will fall into your hands and you will win. Uh, But because battle is real time, the second piece of advice isn't go up and attack them again uh, with a frontal assault. There's no circle around them and only move when you hear the swaying of the poplar trees and you look up and see their movement because only then will God deliver the Philistines into your hands. And anyone who knows anything about Uh, anything about the military, knows that all fighting is real time. It's not the same strategy every time. And if it's not the same strategy every time, what do we need to do? Well, what we need to do is to depend upon the Lord and ask Him for counsel. And if He gives us the counsel and we follow through, we can see the victory of God. And I think there is little details that the author puts in here that shows us the importance of counsel because one of the last things that's written in this passage is a a city called Gibeon. And Gibeon is an interesting little city close to Jerusalem. It's not there, in my opinion, simply to give us geography or geographic information. I think it's there because in Joshua chapter 9, there was a deception that took place and they were, uh, the Israelites were deceived by the Gibeonites. And up to this point, there was a lot of victory for Israel because Joshua was on that well-worn path as well. He was one who was habituated to seeking counsel for, from God and depending upon God. And uh, Joshua is, is, a, is a tremendous figure. And if you recall, when Joshua was a young man, he really pressed on and pressed in to know the Lord. Uh, so when Moses was at the tent of meeting um, and communing with God, Joshua was there. And when Moses left the tent of meeting, Joshua was still there seeking the Lord. So he learned to depend upon God. But the one instance he did not depend upon God and ask him for counsel was with the Gibeonites. So when Gibeon, the city, is mentioned here, I think what the author is trying to do is saying, remember the Gibeonite deception. Remember why that took place. Remember, you have to inquire of the Lord. In the context of warfare. Now, another great book that I read. um, Well, I have to be completely honest with you. I only only read 250 pages of a thousand-page tome. Um, It's Gordon Fee's book, God's Empowering Presence. Uh, One book reviewer said that you could... I mean, the book is so big. It says you can kill a cockroach on a shag rug. And I believe it. It is heavy. (laughs) I think you throw that thing down, you'll probably even be able to kill, you know... A rodent. It is a big book. I read about 250 pages of it, and um, he's basically got one major point that he's proven exegetically over and over again. So at the end of the book, I'm sure you can say this is undeniably true. And what is undeniably true is that the Spirit of God is powerful. And that's not the point that I'm trying to make right now. Uh, but the other two points that he says, and they all begin with peace, so it's easy to remember. The Spirit of God is powerful, He is personal, and He is present. Let's focus on the last two just for, just, for, just for a minute before we get to our last point. And that is, because the Spirit of God is personal, we can have a relationship with Him. We can say, God, uh, give, give, give me some wisdom. Give me some direction. Uh, because He is present, we can do it anywhere. You can be sitting in the pew, sitting in the car, uh, waiting for a cup of coffee, uh, waiting to get a bagel. Lord! Give me wisdom. Give me counsel. Give me direction. 
download to me what you are calling me to do. Confirm things to me. And because he is personal and he's present and he's powerful, God will speak. He will move our hearts. He will speak to us primarily through his word. He will give us convictions that we never once had. And why do these things happen? Because God is a present reality. And if you put good Dutch Reformed theology, and I'm putting that in because I serve at a Dutch Reformed church, you know, it's the spirit of the resurrected Christ. It's not just the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit. And both of them, personal, powerful, present. And so we can have a relationship. We can do what David did then, ask the Lord for counsel. We can inquire, and God will give it to us. But I think the most important point of this passage, and the most um, encouraging um, aspect of this passage, is that it wasn't David's military skill, though he was skilled. Um, It wasn't his... Uh, military acumen, though he was extremely sharp and a, and a true man of war throughout his life, it was God who ultimately fought for his people. And it underlines that important truth that I think we all need to know in our society that, yes, Jesus is Savior. Yes, Jesus is friend. Yes, Jesus is King. Uh, but he's also a divine warrior. And he wages war on our behalf and the victory then belongs to us and ultimately speaking from a redemptive historical point of view, he's definitively won that victory for us upon the cross. He disarmed the powers of evil and made a public spectacle through the cross and particularly through the resurrection and his ascension and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But that victory belongs to him. And we see it here in this passage in a shadowy and poetic way. The Spirit of God broke out like water. It's the Spirit of God that won this victory. And I love this imagery that the poplar trees were were swaying. And you can hear the rustling of their leaves and the banging of their branches. Because there was a colossal figure walking with them. And that colossal figure was no one less than God himself. And when we look at the imageries of the Old Testament, we see time and time again that God is trying to tell his people, I am totally with you, completely with you. And even if you don't know it, I am with you. And you have to see that I am with you. I will never leave you. So as early as the the book of Genesis in chapter 15 to 17, we see a smoking fire pot and a blazing porch go through the carcasses of animals. And I don't have time to go into a a Hittite treaty and what it's like, but the smoke and the fire and the walking through the carcasses of the animal, it resembles the, uh, the smoke and the fire in the wilderness. And the smoke and fire in the wilderness, that pillar are the legs of God. And where are the legs of God? The legs of God are walking with the people. So when the legs walk, that is God walks, the people walk. And when God stops, the people encamp, they encamp around God because God is with them. And when you see that beautiful imagery in the book of Revelation where Jesus is dressed as as a priest with white, with woolly white hair, with fiery eyes with bronze legs, and he stands amongst the lampstands. What's going on? He's standing with his people. And even when the Apostle Paul is converted, 
What does he say? Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, why do you persecute my people or my church? Why do you persecute me? Because he's so there with his people. And so God is with us. And so when we look up and we hear, we see God. The victory is his. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. No, we wrestle against principalities, powers, and authorities in this dark world. And so the victory belongs to him. Now, I know this is a little abstract. Um, What does this look like in in real life? Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm trying to explain to you. I just got back from a trip um, from Turkey and Athens. And while we were in Athens, we were able to connect with a, a really great minister um, and a couple of his friends. I kid you not, one of his friends, his name is Hercules. Uh, he is a very powerful man, um, loves the Lord. And they do a lot of street ministry. And one of the things that they do is they go into the um, one, one area of Athens where um, every night a lot of drug users come and they just shoot up. Um, so the government really can't do anything because there's just so many people. So we went to this place, and uh, the leader there said, you know, John, today is actually a light day. There were still about 50 to 60, 100 people there, and they were making drugs, shooting up drugs, and they were just laid out. And there was a, a team of about 25, 30 people, and the only thing that we can do, I mean, think about it. What can we really do? Uh, a bunch of New Yorkers just hanging out right there. We were there for about two hours, two and a half hours. What can we do? Well, we understood this principle, that the Lord is the one who has to fight on our behalf. So what do we do? Well, we got out a couple of guitars, and we just worshipped God. Um, Some people fell to their knees, and they were worshipping God. Some people wanted prayer. They received prayer. They got prayed for. Uh, We anointed certain people with oil um, so that God would heal them and deliver them. And really powerful things took place. And we believe that. The Lord is going to fight on our behalf. We believe that the Lord is the one who is going to set those captives free. We believe that what we cannot do, God can do. So if there was an aerial picture, it would just look really foolish, right? A couple of people with guitars singing, some people on their knees, and people shooting up all around. But we know the spiritual reality of it. God will move. Because God is real. His spirit loves them. I'll give you another example. Um, We were in Bulgaria uh, the year before, and we went to a gypsy village. And this gypsy village, uh, they don't even have running water. Um, It's a very destitute place, and most of Europe has forgotten about these gypsy villages. Um, And so what do we do? Well, the same thing. We went there to worship. And for hours, we were just worshiping. And as we were worshiping, all the people came out, all the children came out, and we were able to love them. And we believe in our heart of hearts that something really spiritual, something profound, there was a seismic shift that has taken place in the heavenly realms. Why? Because we believe that the Lord fights on behalf of his people. Now, it was a very barren crag of a hill, Um, There were no poplars, but if there were poplar trees, I'm sure we would have seen the rustling, heard the rustling of leaves, and have seen the branches bow before the presence of God that went before us. 
So it's through our prayers. It's through our worship. It's through the proclamation of the word of God, which seems so feeble and so weak in the eyes of the world. But that's how we win victories. King Jehoshaphat, he was afraid. What does God say? Worship and I will set ambushes. Elisha was in a valley and he saw the army of Aram circle him. His servant was definitely afraid. Oh my gosh, Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, Lord, open my servant's eyes. Fires of chariots all around the Aramean army. There is a spiritual reality. So what's the the upshot? Well, a couple things here, um, application-wise. The Lord Jesus um, is that ultimate conqueror. Um, He's done it all through the cross. That power flows to us. That victory flows to us. And so, be aware. There's a a battle. I wrote an article a while ago, and uh, the introduction goes like this. We are put at a hermeneutical disadvantage, period. Uh, Because almost everyone in the Bible was a a person uh, who was a man of war or a woman of war or knew what warfare was like. Uh, Many of us are not like that. Be be aware of the battle. Uh, More so, be aware of the victory of Christ. Uh, And don't lose hope. Um, Thirdly, and I, I love the way this sounds, look up and hear. Look up and hear. And as we look up and hear... Um, take steps of faith. And what do I mean by take steps of faith? You know, someone told me that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. He's a Harvard-trained um, doctor and undergraduate, so I know he knows how to spell. Um, the way you spell faith is R-I-S-K, risk. Take risks as you um, uh, look up and hear what God calls us to do. And I can assure you that if we do, uh, there will be greater victory for uh, the people of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord to bless all of us. Uh, Gracious and loving Father, um, what a joy to see throughout um, your word and throughout redemptive history that um, you stand with your people, Lord God. And um, that's our strength, that's our hope, God, because we are weak, but you are strong. Um, When we can't stand, you still stand. And uh, when we find ourselves um, slipping, you neither sleep nor slumber. Um, You are our divine warrior. Um, And so we thank you. God, I pray that you would give us faith, give us um, more hope in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would uh, really come to see uh, more and more of you because you're personal, powerful, and present. And we pray, God, that you would give us the faith Uh, to take risks. And as we take this risk, I pray that you would honor us as we seek to honor you. Bless this beautiful community. Uh, Bless um, the middle coughs and their amazing work here. And we pray that you would accelerate everything good in their life and that you will use them um, to bless the East End all the way um, to the city and everywhere in between and even beyond that. And we thank you for the witness of this community 
And may they see more and more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.